what was it like being the daughter of the world's most famous and adored syndicated advice columnist in newspapers all over America? Buckle on up as you are about to find out. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast and get ready to be inspired, motivated, and achieve massive success. And now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today is the daughter of Epi Letterer, better known as the most famous advice columnist, Ann Landers. Her father was Jules Letterer, the founder of Budget Rent-A-Car. In the late 60s, she had her own newspaper column. Welcome to The Motivation Show, Margot Howard. Hello. Well, thank you for coming on here today. And, you know, I read Ann Landers, I think, when I was probably back in my college days. So what I'm curious about is, what was it like growing up with not only a famous mother, but a father who founded a famous company? Well, I was lucky. Mother went to work when I was 15. So I was kind of formed and on my own and in high school. And there came a time when I wished she would pay less attention to me. I was an only child, the beloved only child. And it was a wonderful childhood. They were both crazy about me. And life was good. And it didn't impact me, particularly that she was famous. He was only well known in the business world, having been the first one to figure out franchising and discounting. And they traveled, both of them, a lot. Sometimes we all three would travel. And it was lovely being a kid for me. I could just imagine. Yeah, it might must have been. Because first of all, you know, uh, when I think of beloved columnists, uh, I really can't think much beyond Ann Landers. And Three generations of people, Eli. I bump into people from three generational groups, and they all say, I I was raised with Ann Landers. Her advice was either on my dinner plate or taped to the refrigerator door. You know, it's always my impression that either Ann Landers was the smartest woman alive, (laughs) or she had a team of like psychologists or both. What is the truth? Exactly. But she, (laughs) she would put her head together with experts if she needed guidance. And she, of course, could get the best in the world because there's no one who would not return a phone call from Ann Landers. So her spiritual advisor was Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of Notre Dame, for whom my doctor daughter is named. Her middle name is Ted, not Theodora, Ted, because although we are Jewish, my mother went to Vietnam. She was fighting with Hubert Humphrey to lean on Lyndon Johnson about that lousy war. So she went to Vietnam and they didn't want anything to happen to her. So she was always in in Westmoreland's plane, the white whale. And she had two, she called them those cute kids. She had two MPs with her and she was staying with a general on Ho Chi Minh's birthday and they bombed the backyard and she was fine. So she decided that Father Ted saying the novenas or whatever the, the Catholic people say in the morning saved her. So she called me. I called her through the State Department. She said, if you have the baby, here's the number. So I reached her in Vietnam. I said, I had a baby. It's a baby girl. And she said, um, I hope you will name the baby for Father Ted. I said, I beg your pardon. She said, I want you to name the baby for Father Ted because I think I owe him a great debt. I said, I'll tell you what, 
you have a baby and you name the baby for Fowlerton. <laughs> well, she explained it to me and she really believed it. I don't know what I believe, but I liked him very much. So she is Andrea Ted, and I won't say her last name. Uh-huh. So what life lessons do you feel as Margot Howard you can attribute to your mother? Well, I think the big one was maturity is the ability to wait. I've internalized that. And another one that I put into practice is when things go haywire, go to bed, take a nap, wake up and start all over again. Hmm. So kind of like don't react like right away, just kind of like take a break. No, not don't react. If things seem rotten, go to bed and just kind of make a clean slate. Clean slate. I like that. You know, yeah. nothing like eight hours of separation, right? Oh, no, honey, a nap. <laughs> not eight hours is in the nighttime. Uh-huh. I could do this in the middle of the day. Yeah. So, you know, now your last name is Howard. Yeah. Thanks to marrying another famous person, a very well-known actor at the time. Can you share how that name came about and who he is? I interviewed Ken Howard when he brought Equus to Chicago. The first Broadway show I saw. Really? New York, yeah. 19, like 76 or 7. (laughs) Their director said he was the straightest Dr. Dysart in the history Mm -hmm. of the show. And he took out the national company. And I knew he was a good guy because he was very good about my not knowing who he was. And we had a four and a half hour lunch. And things were clicking. And he said, I need to see you some more. I said, um, you have a show tonight. He said, well, well, that'll be fine. We'll do it. And so he dragged me back with him for an Irish coffee that should have gotten my antenna up, the Irish <laughs> coffee, but it didn't. And, and I went to see the show and he wanted to see me after the show. And I told him he could come for an after theater bite. And he came to my apartment and Uh, He started coming to my apartment after the shows, but he didn't leave. And it was a very fast romance. We were married six months later, and I had three children. And people said, it'll be hard to, you know, find a husband, another husband with three children. Well, it didn't seem to be because I, the starter husband was the father of the children. So I was neat, but not thoughtful. So on visiting day, I, there was one person involved. And I had a second husband between the starter husband and Ken Howard, That was rather brief. The three years to me is brief. And so Ken Howard was number three and he was terrific. He was a great father substitute to the children. In fact, my son pended his last name to his own without benefit of an adoption. And um, he was a great guy in terms of family. I had a lot of fun and I understood the world of celebrity because of the way I had grown up. Neither one of us cared for Los Angeles, where that business is is based. And so we got a farm in Connecticut near Hotchkiss, where my son was. That's the son who said to him at age 10, because he met him traveling with a play, he said, when are you going to settle down and go into business? So at that point, he decided he needed to create a series so we'd be parked in Los Angeles. And so he created The White Shadow, which was based on his own high school career in Manhasset. And he took it to Bruce Paltrow, who was nowhere then, but he knew Bruce because he and Blythe Danner had been a stage couple. They were on Broadway in 1776. They had a television show together. And at Williamstown Theater Festival, they often played opposite each other. And they had a 
little known daughter, huh? <laughs> well, well, I tell you, I met Gwynny when she was 14 and she was, yeah. she was my son's first living girlfriend. And she, like her mother, was nothing to look at without makeup. It's just a remarkable thing. Some people in the movies need makeup to really look fabulous. And Gwynny and Blythe were two of those people. Very interesting. So, Margo, you uh, had uh, your first article back for the uh, Chicago Tribune in the late 60s. Can you tell us a little bit about that infamous article? Oh, yes. I was a Playboy bunny for three days. I need to find out where you're getting your information so I know how to deal with this story. <laughs> where nope, did you well, get that information? Oh, I, I got it from you. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So that couldn't have been. All right. It was rather a commotion. And the way I got in was Arnold Morton, who from the Morton Steakhouse family was the director of food and beverage for all the Playboy clubs. And at that point, they were all over the world. And Gloria Steinem had already snuck in and did a lot of damage. Her viewpoint of those girls was that they thought her viewpoint was the, the bunnies who were serving were waitresses, you know, wearing revealing costumes and a tail, a round bunny tail on their bottoms. And they were not happy with that. So I said to Arnold, when I wanted to do this, he was a neighbor, by the way, he married a gaslight girl, and we had little kids together, but Arnold had big kids already. Arnold was older. So I said, look, Gloria Steinem already did you in what what can I do? I can't do you any harm. So he said, Okay, you can do it. So for three days, I was a bunny at the Chicago Playboy Club. And when the seamstress was Fitting me, I said, look, I had a good figure then, but I mean, I had had three children. I said, can you go a little easy, you know, with the way you're doing the costume? And so anyway, and the the way all the bunnies have a rack is they place your own boobs on top of cotton in the brassiere. So everything is up. And so I looked pretty good and they weren't going to let me carry a tray because they thought there might be a liability there. So they said, you will be the camera bunny. So somebody taught me how to work with their camera. And I would go around and do the bunny dip, which is bending your knees and turning. Very strange. And I was the camera bunny for three days. Then I wrote a piece about it. I wasn't a writer then. I just thought, well, I've got to take this down. And I put it in a drawer. I'm sorry. I I did it for a reason. I wanted to write a book about glamorous jobs for women, but done as a dilettante, a la George Plimpton. He was all the rage then. And I was in not a great marriage with the starter husband. And I thought, well, if I have a job, I won't notice that the marriage is not so great. So I wrote the piece and I took it to the feature editor of my mother's paper, which was the Sun-Times. He said, I don't like it. I said, okay. And I put it in a drawer. Fast forward to the end of that marriage, maybe a year later, and a family that I loved, Gene Siskel's, he called them his parents, but they were his aunt and uncle. His actual parents died within a year of each other. So the lovely aunt and uncle, May and Joe and Glencoe, took in the three Siskel kids with the three gray kids. And that was it. So I knew that family, and I was newly divorced. There was a wedding in that family, and their wonderful mother, Mae Gray, 
said, I know you can't be seen to have a date. So I'm your dinner partner is going to be Jeannie, who's way too young for you. I said, perfect. So I must have talked his ear off because at the end of the wedding dinner, he said, if I, oh, he said, do you write? I said, I don't know. And he said, if I had my editor call you, would you come talk? I said, sure. So the, he had the editor call me. Now, his editor, who was the feature editor of the Tribune, was a man named Walter Simmons, who terrified everyone. But I loved him. He was very tall, large, pink cheeks. And I just immediately started to call him Papa Bear, this man that people were terrified of. And we talked. And he said, have you written anything you could show me? I said, only one thing. And it was the Playboy piece. So he had me come back and I sat in his office. He read it in front of me and he said, you will work for me. I said, well, I don't really know how. He said, well, I will teach you. And fast forward, he really did teach me and he made me a star. And there was a syndicate fight, a newspaper syndicate fight over my coming with them. And the logical one for me would have been the New York, the Chicago Tribune, New York Daily News Syndicate. But my miserable aunt, the lovely dear Abby, who was my mother's twin sister, who none of us really liked much at that point, she would not leave my mother alone. She continued the twinship. My mother didn't want a twinship. So dear Abby followed her into the news business, but they could never get rid of her. Anyway, Popo, as we called her in the family, said, that kid's not coming in my syndicate. So I said to my mother, who had the better syndicate, would it be okay if I came with you, with creators? She said, well, of course. And she sent me an IBM Selectric. And I was off and running. And I was doing feature pieces. I, my first piece, after the Playboy piece, he sent me to Palm Beach. He said, what would you like to do? I said, I would like to destroy Worth Avenue because it is so ridiculous. <laughs> and he said, go do it. So I wrote a wonderful takedown. And I was lucky. I wrote as I spoke. I had no journalism school, but I will say that when I got going in the news business, my then beau, I was away from the starter husband, was J. Anthony Lucas from the New York Times. And he answered my technical questions, if I had any. But I'm very lucky that uh, that my writing sounds like my talking. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me like you don't uh, play games. <laughs> <laughs> you tell it no. like it is, which is what no. makes you very refreshing. I like you because well, thank you, you. <laughs> I like you too. yeah, you know, you have no, there's no pretense about you. And, you know, it, it fascinates me, the, the newspaper business and you left the newspaper business, right? In 1977. Is that correct? I did. That's when I moved to Los Angeles with Ken Howard. We left Chicago. We'd been living together for six months. The play closed. He kept it there longer than any out of town show had ever been there. And he was crafting the white shadow. And we went to Los Angeles. And oh, God, I can't remember his name. A great newspaper guy heard that I was leaving. He said, you can come work for me. He was the editor then of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. He wasn't the editor of the good paper. I said, look, it's not my town. I, I don't think I should do that. So I was doing magazine pieces then for the New Republic and a cover piece now and then for People magazine. I had an odd assortment of friends and editors. And then Ken Howard put me in the in the guest house. He said, I want you to write a book because people have been talking about my writing a book. So I did it. I didn't know how to write a book, but then I didn't know how to be a syndicated columnist either. I did that. So my first book 
I refer to as the Jewish Dallas. It was called oh, Epi, the story of Ann Landers. And I told the story of my mother, my father, my Aunt Popo, her husband, my Russian grandparents. And it was it really did well. And my mother was not thrilled with it. I didn't show it to her until it was in galleys. I said, this is for correction only. And she said, my God, you certainly told a lot of stuff and you certainly were honest. I said, well, I didn't know another way to do it. And it was bought by a producer named, oh God, Renee. Is Renee Valenti a famous name that maybe I'm picking out? Not necessarily. Yeah, <laughs> probably probably the average person in the street uh, probably I knows Rihanna probably better. <laughs> it was a producer. She bought it. And then, but we had script okay. And my mother used that chance to say, I don't want this. So I, I, I went along with her. And also Jerry Herman wanted to do a Broadway musical about her. And she said no to that. Wow. That would have been interesting. <laughs> Bright lights of Broadway. Actually, how did uh, Ann Landers become Ann Landers? Like, how did she even get a, a, a gig like that? I mean, you, I was you know. responsible for that, too. Really? Yes. We lived in a town in Wisconsin from my age, seven to 14, because my father's factory was there. He was running Presto Industries. The, remember the pressure cookers? Yep. They had a lawyer on staff. I mean, they would explode, you know, if women didn't follow the directions properly. So we were in this meat locker of a town that was very small. My mother didn't like it at all. So we were on a train called the 400 many weekends if we were not in Palm Springs or Hawaii or doing something great. Mother was not working then. And the train from Eau Claire to Chicago and I'm sorry, Minneapolis to Chicago was 400 miles. So the train was called the 400. And we would always sit in the club car. She did not drink, but we sat in the club car. And I would chat up strangers and get into gin games. I was 12 at the time I'm telling you about. And next to me was a man who was not very attractive, but he looked presentable. I knew he wouldn't attack us. So I said to my mother, what is that water that we see all the time. She said, I have no idea. The two of us are geography deficient. So I said to this man, do you know what that water is? And he said, yes, it's the Ha 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 River. So we started to talk and he said, would you like to have dinner in the dining car? I said, oh, that'd be fun. And he said, shall we ask your mother? I said, no. And he said, um, I think we really should. Okay. So, and I only realized many years later, he was trying to get to her his name was Wilbur C. Munnicky, and he was Marshall Field's second. He was running the Field newspapers and whatever else they owned. Previous to that, he had been the number two guy at the University of Chicago during the time of Oppenheimer. And he was a very patrician gentleman, and they, he and his wife, Sis, had no children, and they became our Sherpas when we moved to Chicago when I was 14 in 1954. And before then, in Wisconsin, mother had been a very important Democrat. She was in line to be the National Committee woman. And she never had a paying job, because why would she? She didn't need to work. She had no college degree. She was an uber volunteer. So in Chicago, having risen very high in Wisconsin politics, you would not recognize, she would not recognize Wisconsin today. They were La Follette Democrats then. Now they're a bunch of working crazies. Anyway, <laughs> we got to Chicago and mother knew people all over the country in democratic politics. 
So Jake Arvey, who was the man who ran Mayor Daley the first, called my father. He did an end run around my mother. And he said, she cannot go into democratic politics here. They will put her in Lake Michigan with cement shoes. So my father mentioned Jake Arvey's name and said, you got to find something else to do, babe. So she was very high energy and she didn't know what to do. And one day she was reading the Ann Landers column. And she said, you know, this woman cannot answer all the letters that are coming in. I could help her do that. So she called the man that I called Uncle Will. And she said, I would like to answer the letters that don't get into the newspaper with Ann Landers. And so he said, why are you calling me now? And mother said, well, it just occurred to me and I just put down the paper. He said, that woman died last week. And mother said, oh, good. And Will said, what do you mean, oh, good? She said, well, I can do it. He said, no, you can't do it. You've never worked. You have no college degree. You're not a nurse. You don't need the money. No. And she said, yes. And he said, well, a lot of people want to do this, you know, which is why we're having a contest. Mother said, I'm in. He said, oh, Christ. So everything was coded. Nobody knew who anybody was trying out. So she was the 28th person in the contest. And the reason it was coded, because some executive wives thought they wanted to be Ann Landers. So all these 28 women, and they were all women then, got the same letters. And mother then was interested in expert advice if she didn't know the answer. So there was a legal question about nuts from someone's tree falling in a yard. So, of course, she calls a lawyer, Justice Douglas. Well, I'm sure he fobbed it off on a on a clerk, but that is where she got the answer. You may play with them, you may juggle, you may cook with them, but you may not sell them because they weren't yours. And then if she had in the in the trial questions, a theological question, it was Ted Hesburgh, our good friend. And Hubert Humphrey was very close to her. And I wound up being an intern for him in 1960. But if she had something that she felt she needed expert political advice, she'd call Hubert. So they're unraveling the codes. She's in the first cut. She's in the second cut. She's in the third cut. They decode it, and it's her. And Will Munnicky said, you can't have it. She said, what do you mean I can't have it? I want it fair and square. And he said, look, I cannot be in the business of finding a new Ann Landers every six months. You, you're not equipped for this. She said, I want it, and I'm going to do it. Not only that. So they had to give it to her. Ann Landers had always been anonymous. It was a nurse who had died, who was Ann Landers. She had a very paltry syndication, but nobody knew who it was. So my mother wasn't going to be anonymous anybody. So she got an invitation from What's My Line, and she went to New York. And the night before, Fred Allen had died. So the country is watching. And what they then had- What year is this? What year is this? 1955. 55. Now, what was the tell? Was it Hooper ratings then in 55 before Nielsen? No, I'm not sure. Anyway, the ratings went through the roof because everybody wanted to see what would happen without Fred Allen. She heard from people she went to grade school with in Sioux City. Anyway, she was out of the closet, as it were, and she made it a great success. And she, to cement her position in towns as she built her syndication, she ended up being the most widely syndicated text column in the world. Only the comic strip guys had more eyeballs than she did. And she built it into a a very 
big business. I mean, my father was astonished. And it's one of the reasons he went looking for a business with depreciation because she was making money. He never counted on her making money. And he was a member of the YPO group, which was a very good networking thing in the mid-century last. And he sat at the pool at a YPO meeting with Warren Avis, who basically told him how to rent cars. And so he figured out, I'll stay out of the airport. So he was $5 a day, five cents a mile. Everybody else was 10. But the interesting thing about them, they were playing with a lot of money, but they, they were not cultured people. I remember when I went to Brandeis, they met me in New York one weekend and we went to a museum. And oh God, who was it? Speaking of not cultured people, I think I'm one of them. Jasper Johns had a big painting in one of the museums of a huge number five. And that was father's first slogan, $5 a day, five cents. He wanted to buy it. I said, father, this is a museum. It is not a store. And he, <laughs> he, he pursued, but he, he was a wonderful man. And just darling, he dropped out of school in the 10th grade because he had to. Because he, his mother was widowed with seven children. And so you don't you don't need a, a fancy education, a fancy PhD to be mega f- successful, right? Your father you know, and you, your mom proved that. I think the two of them in those days you could. I don't think in these days you could. Yeah, Mirror, I dropped out of Brandeis to marry the starter husband. That was important, wasn't it? But I never thought of working. Had I've not been invited, I was on the wrong side of the women's movement. I was on the old lady side of the women's movement. Well, I, I think your mom proved that, you know, if if you uh, have tremendous perseverance and you surround yourself by the right people, you can overcome a lot of, you know, uh, so-called deficiencies that, you know, other people think. And if you're confident, you're, it sounds like your mom had tremendous self-confidence. Every time she was told no, she said yes. <laughs> you're right. I'm, I'm sure some people called it chutzpah. Or as yeah. Michelle Bachman used to call it, chutzpah. <laughs> so are there any uh classic uh famous Ann Landers columns that uh you could remember that was uh controversial or just fascinating at the time or even now? Well, yes, she got into a big whirly gig with toilet paper. There there was a fight in her column, how do you hang it? You know, going this way or this underneath or over. And I'm still this, trying to figure that out. There's no right answer. <laughs> oh, actually, yes. The toilet paper company, one wrote her and said, it's over. But we always did it under. And both of us would go into other people's powder rooms and change it if it, we thought it was wrong. Anyway, she got 15,000 letters right off the bat about how to hang the toilet paper. So that was famous. A famous column. It wasn't controversial. She and my father parted. They got divorced when after 36 years. I was 35 years old. And I remember Nora Ephron, who was my friend then, but not later, said, put your phone on service. She said, the wire services, the magazines, everybody will be trying to get to you. And it was a 24-hour news story that they were divorced. And she did something rather theatrical for the news business. She wrote about what a great guy he had been, how many wonderful years they'd had. And then she said, a note to my editors, please leave the bottom of this column white space as a memorial to a great marriage that didn't make it to the finish line. And I gave that column because it was so famous to the museum in Washington. Interesting. So you yourself wrote three books and the last one has a 
very catchy title, <laughs> Eat, Drink, and Remarry, Confessions of a Serial uh, Wife. What could we learn by reading that book? Well, I, I think people could learn from my mistakes. I wasn't very thoughtful. I sort of was on the wind until I, I grew up. I grew up, I think, during and after the Ken Howard marriage. I was in a lot of situations, and I would meet people. I think, oh, that seems like a good idea. And the second marriage actually was by design. I wanted a solid middle-class guy to sort of fix things and make up for the starter husband who became enormously rich, but was a lousy father and drank. So I didn't really pull it together. The Ken Howard marriage was a great romance. It was a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun, but I, I could not sober him up. So I knew I couldn't live that way. And then we had bought a, an apartment in uh, Cambridge. When he, when he got so sick of himself doing Dynasty and the Colbys, he said to, oh, who's that man who drank? You know, the producer of those shows, Aaron Spelling. He said, I, Aaron said to him when they did it, because Ken Howard had always played very dignified people, but this was... Um, now, yeah, he was a lawyer for Aaron. He was Diane Carroll's lawyer in Dynasty and the Colbys. And he was in both shows, which is like a license to steal. And Aaron said to him when they started, because he'd always played other kinds of characters. He said, look, if you can't stand the dreck, just tell me no harm, no foul. And you can leave after one year in a three-year contract. So after a year, he was so disgusted with himself. I mean, it was Paul Newman's fuck you money. I mean, it was just obscene. So he said, I have to get out of here. So he called Bob Brustein, who had been his dean at Yale Drama School, who then went on to run the, the ART, American Repertory Theater at Harvard. So he called Bob Brustein and said, can I come to you for a year? My head is exploding. And, and Bob said, nobody who's established had ever done that, but come. And, and he loved it. He was in a repertory company. And of course, he was so well known then from the White Shadow that they had to audition the kids who wanted to be in his class. And then he wound up teaching with Charles Nesson, evidence professor at Harvard Law, at the same time, a course on performance skills for trial lawyers. And so it was a wonderful year. We bought an apartment. When that was over, we went back to California. When I left him, I went back to Cambridge because we had the apartment and also it was the perfect antidote to Los Angeles. I was 51 years old when I went back single. People said, you're so glamorous. I thought, what? I, you know, in Los Angeles, I'd be ready for the trash heap of old ladies. And I loved it. I have always been funny and not terribly serious. So nobody felt I was in competition with them in Cambridge. So I was invited into all kinds of groups. And I hung out at the Kennedy School of Government, which I loved. And people on the street, really rich people would drive dinged up cars. It was heaven after Los Angeles. And it took me a while to find my marvelous, mother-pleasing Harvard heart surgeon to whom I've been married for 23 years. Oh, that's sweet. So why do you uh, feel, Margo, that um, there are not more advice columnists today? Or if there are, you know, why do you suppose they don't seem to have the same cachet or notoriety that your mom had? Well, she and I guess my aunt joined in. They kind of redid the business and they owned all the real estate. Also, there aren't as many papers today. The news business has really taken a hit. I'm glad I'm not in it anymore. 
but I, I wouldn't be anyway, but 113. But the newest business was grand and it is no longer grand. However, they did one thing when, when my mother died, she sort of took the field with her so that other advice people came back with a particular area. You know, there, there were dog advice columns, there were advice columns for people wondering what to do about death. Everything had- More niche than, than general, yes, yeah. thank you. Niche is the word I was yeah. looking for. And so that was a change that went along with fewer newspapers. Hmm, interesting. And so um, what is Margot Howard up to today? And are there any future endeavors or goals? <laughs> Oh, honey, no. <laughs> it's interesting. People well, you're just living la vida loca. <laughs> I guess. But people say, what do you do all day? And I say, I don't know. I am behind. I have no job, no real housekeeping to do, no grandchildren because they're too far away. I don't know what I'm so busy doing that I cannot catch up. As you know, my email is a mess. I'm behind. I'm behind in my reading. I'm behind in television shows I want to see. I don't know. I think when you're old, you have maybe three good hours a day. Well, I can tell don't you. Remember, you, Eli. That, you don't sound old. I can tell you that. And uh, boy, you are as lucid and as quick and as sharp and as funny as <laughs> as anybody that I've talked to. I can tell you that. I have and, my marbles, but I, I can't get anything done. Yeah. <laughs> I joined the club. It's a big club out there. So uh, besides uh, seeking out an advice columnist, you know, what do you think are the best ways uh, today for people to get their questions answered? Well, I like, but th th this is maybe not good for everybody. I was raised at a time where you, you sought therapy. Like I went into analysis to unload the starter husband. Mm. That's what you did then. And I've gone back for a few touch-ups. Uh, not in analysis, but with psychiatrists, I'm in favor of that kind of help. And social workers are good. And social psychologists are good. I believe in asking for professional help. But people can find their own ways out of things if they really pay attention and try. Reading is a good way. Talking to a smart friend. There are ways to get help. So uh, going back to uh, my prior question, uh, did you ever get to... Uh meet you Hefner because of those uh, Playboy articles. <laughs> I did in an interesting way, not because of that business. I got to Hugh Hefner because the guy who was making all his socially conscious decisions was a sweet guy named Dick Rosenzweig. And he moved Hef into the direction of left liberal politics. And Hef always liked news people. Every Sunday he would show movies and I was always there. Uh, I went in the news business when I was um, 28 years old. So every Sunday that I wasn't out of town, I would go see a movie at Hef's house where I would see Bill Cosby if he was playing in Chicago surly and just awful, leaning against a wall, kind of surveying the situation. So I would be at Hef. So I knew him from that. A sweet story about Hef that has to do with my mother, Gene Siskel's girlfriend was a woman older than he named Bobby Arnstein, she was Hefner's number one personal secretary. She got mixed up in a drug situation and they tried to, to reel Hef in. They thought, okay, he's doing it too. Well, he wasn't. And my mother, and I'll tell you their history in a minute. My mother said, if this goes to trial, I will be a character witness for you. And because she was a personage in Chicago and he was, 
Every once in a while, he would invite her for dinner, just the two of them. And it was remarked that he used to get into a suit. He'd get out of those crazy pajamas and his bathrobe when my mother came for dinner and he'd wear a suit. Someone said like his own mother. So they were odd friends. And he really was a square. He wasn't doing drugs. He only drank Pepsi-Cola. He didn't drink alcohol. He was an odd guy, but but he certainly figured out a lucrative business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, would you change anything, Margo, if you had to do it all over again? Is there anything that stands out that you change or what are your thoughts? <laughs> I probably wouldn't. You know, I'm just that much of a rascal. I'd probably go do it all over again, mistakes and all. But if I had a wish... I wish that I had been more thoughtful for the children's sake, really. And they wouldn't have been those children. They'd be other children. I wish I'd been more thoughtful about a partner for my life rather than be on the wind and just do what seemed interesting or whatever. Also, I, I bucked my parents about the starter husband. They said, don't do it. Mm. And I did it. And I wasn't rebellious. That, that, that I'll never understand. But I wish I had made a better starter husband. From I would have had more balanced children, I think. Well, I think you've done pretty well for your life. You've accomplished a lot of great things. You, uh, uh, I admire you. I've learned a lot from you. And I want to thank you for coming on the show today, Margo. Thank you, Eli. If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email the motivation show at gmail.com. That's the motivation show at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.